A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to A History of Europe. Key Battles. The Battle of the Catalonian Fields. Part 3 of 3. In the previous two podcasts, I talked about the late Roman Empire. In the late 4th century and early 5th century, large numbers of a people called the Huns migrated in waves from their Eurasian steppe homelands into northern and eastern Europe. This created a domino effect, pushing various tribes, mostly but not all Germanic, into Roman territory. One such tribe were the Vandals, who migrated all the way from northern Europe into Spain, then across into northern Africa, where they eventually captured the Roman city of Carthage in the year 439. The commander of the armies in the west of the empire, Aetius, organised an expedition to retake the city but these plans had to be abandoned when troops from the east of the empire, an essential part of the forces, were suddenly and urgently required elsewhere. The Huns were raiding deep into the Balkans and had to be stopped. Today I tell the story of the last days of empire, focusing on one great battle between the Huns and the Western Roman Empire, known to history as the Battle of the Catalonian Fields. If you visit the website www.historyeurope.net, you'll see some maps and images of the battle. At the time of the fall of Carthage to the Vandals, the Huns were led by two brothers, Attila and Bleda. Back in 434, they had agreed to a treaty with Constantinople. The Romans had agreed to double the amount of gold they gave the Huns to not attack to open their markets to Hunnic traders and to receive no refugees from the Hunnic Empire. Following this agreement, the Huns then directed their aggression on the Persian Empire instead. But after defeat in Armenia against the Persians, the Huns abandoned their invasion and came to the conclusion it would be easier and more profitable to return to invading Rome. In late 440, a group of Huns seized a Roman fort by force. When the Romans complained, the Hunnic leadership complained that a local bishop had crossed over to their lands and robbed some royal tombs. The accusation was a fantasy, a thin pretext for war. The next spring, a Hunnic army crossed the Danube in force and took several forts and cities along the frontier. Next, they besieged the city of Nysus, situated on a major crossroad of the Roman military highway. The victory the Huns achieved was described by the Roman chronicler Priscus. Quote, When a large number of siege engines had been brought up to the wall, the defenders on the battlements gave in because of the clouds of missiles and evacuated their positions. The rams were Brought up also from the walls, the defenders tumbled down wagon-sized boulders. 
Some rams they crushed, together with the men working them, but they could not hold out against the great number of machines. Then the enemy brought up scaling ladders. The barbarians entered through the part of the wall broken by the blows of the rams, and the city was taken. End quote. Perhaps the most worrying aspect of the invasion, from the Roman point of view, was the realisation that the Huns had now learnt well the art of siege warfare. The barbarians' new capacity to take key fortified centres was a huge strategic shock, as impregnable fortified cities were central to the empire's control of its territories. The chronology of the next few years is difficult to put together, no single narrative exists from the sources, so the order of events has to be deduced from scraps of information from various chronicles. In 444 or 445, Attila had his brother Bleda murdered and took unchallenged command of his people. He led his army on several incursions into the Balkans and even threatened the city walls of Constantinople in 447. Hunnic forces captured and destroyed numerous Roman strongholds, raiding as far south as Thermopylae, site of the Spartans' famous defence of Greece against the Persians nearly a thousand years before. The fragmented accounts that survive make clear the level of devastation, but give little insight on how the Huns had become such a successful fighting force. Some credit must be given to the leadership of Attila. He displayed not only great military ability, but also the diplomatic skills required to integrate numerous Germanic tribes into the Hunnic Empire, especially a group of tribes called the Ostrogoths. They joined Alanic and Sarmatian groups who had long been in alliance with the Huns. For the first time in history, the Huns had managed to unite a large number of Rome's European neighbours into something approaching a rival imperial superpower. In the year 450, Constantinople was braced for another round of attacks, when they received unexpectedly good news, returning from an embassy, returning from a meeting with Attila. Priscus describes how, quote, Attila swore that he would keep the peace, and withdraw from the Roman territory, bordering the Danube, and that he would cease to press the matter of the fugitives. End quote. The reason for Attila's desire for a peaceful border with the eastern Roman territories soon became clear. Attila was putting together plans to invade the western half of the empire. Perhaps the returns from repeated raids on the east was decreasing. Also, in 450, a new emperor, Martian, acceded to the throne in Constantinople. This experienced military commander was more willing and able to confront the Hunnic military threat head-on. Attila was gifted a pretext for war by the sister of the Western Emperor, Valentinian III, Honoria. Having scandalously fallen pregnant in an illicit love affair, she was removed from public office and betrothed to a dull senator. In her distress and frustration, she wrote a letter to Attila, offering him her hand in marriage with half the Western Empire as her dowry. There is debate as to the real truth about this extraordinary act of recklessness, but there is generally believed to be some truth in it. 
Attila was almost certainly planning to attack the West beforehand anyway. For several years up till then, Aetis's good relations with the Huns had helped dissuade the Huns from attacking the West. But Attila was fully aware of the weak state of the Western Empire's defences, whose riches now became too tempting to resist. The first Germanic tribe within Roman territory to face Attila were the Franks, who had settled in north-eastern Gaul. In 450 their king died and was succeeded by his younger son. His claim over his elder brother was supported by Aetius, who had earlier befriended him on an early visit to Rome. This was a shrewd move, since an alliance of Franks eliminated the need to station troops on the north-east frontier of Gaul. The disadvantage of the strategy is that it compelled the aggrieved elder son to ally with Attila. Aetius flatly refused to even negotiate with the Huns on a possible marriage with Honoria. So Attila changed diplomatic strategy and claimed instead that his only intention on entering Gaul was to attack the Visigoths. Based in southern Gaul, the Visigoths were the largest barbarian force in the west. Their relations with Ravenna were now friendly, but over the last decades had been turbulent, especially in 410, at the time of the sack of Rome described earlier. In the past, Aetius had used the Huns as mercenaries to fight against the Goths, so Attila's claim was not completely unbelievable. But Aetius saw through the ruse, thanks to a network of informants within the different barbarian camps. Attila had sent messages to the Franks encouraging them to rise up in support of the elder brother, and separately to a group of Alans settled in southeast Gaul, proposing linking up to attack the Romans. Amid all this frantic political activity, it was the Hunnic envoys to the Goths that were the cause of greatest concern to Aetius. In a direct contradiction to the message to Ravenna, Attila sent a message to Theodoric, leader of the Visigoths, urging him to break his treaty with the Romans. Aetius was able to use Attila's duplicity to his advantage, sending embassies to Theodoric to request an alliance and informing him of Attila's claim that he was going to attack the Goths. Unsure of who to trust, Theodoric decided on neutrality. Aetius sent messages around Gaul to build an alliance of military powers against the Huns, including to the semi-independent natives of Brittany and to a group called the Odobriones, thought to be old Roman units in northern Gaul who had merged with some of the Frankish invaders. No surviving source gives the complete story of Attila's western campaign, but we know roughly what happened. The main problem is not knowing to what extent the medieval ecclesiastical chronicles exaggerated the effects of Attila's attacks. We do know the invasion occurred in the year 451. Attila headed a medley of various tribes from all across Europe, including some originating from the Volga area and today's Ukraine, as well as from Germania. The main allied contingents were provided by the Ostrogoths and another Germanic tribe called the Gepids. The first city that Attila is known to have attacked was Metz on the 7th of April, the day before Easter. It was quickly taken and sacked. 
the Huns made rapid progress across Gaul, meeting little resistance. Aetius crossed the Alps from Gaul with what was described by Sidonius Apollinaris as, quote, thin meagre force of auxiliaries without legions, end quote. This suggests that some troops were left in Rome to defend against a possible attack there. Aetius tried once more to convince Theodoric to join him. On learning how few troops Aetius had with him, Theodoric decided it was wiser to wait to oppose the Huns in his own lands. Aetius turned then to a powerful local Roman commander, Avitus, to persuade the Goths. Avitus was a friend of Theodoric, and managed to persuade him that it was in his people's best interest to join the alliance against Attila. Buoyed by this significant diplomatic victory, Aetius was now able to dissuade the leader of the Alans in southern Gaul from allying with Attila, and instead to join the Roman alliance. Having gathered all the forces he could muster, Aetius marched towards Orleans, which he knew was under siege from Attila. The city had held out bravely, but as the Roman forces arrived, was on the point of capitulation. Aetius arrived just in time to prevent the Huns breaking through the walls and plundering the city. Attila heard of the arrival of Aetius and retreated back a little eastwards, looking for an advantageous spot to make a stand. Theodoric and Aetius followed in close pursuit, catching sight of the Hunnic army in the afternoon of the 19th of June, 451. That day, Giordano's rights, Attila's Frankish allies clashed with a force of Gepids. Although there were many casualties on both sides, it was just a prelude to the main battle the next day. The location of the battlefield has not been identified, since the sources are not clear and contradict each other. The only detailed description of the battle is by Giordano's, so we do not have the advantage of any texts to corroborate his account. Before battle, Attila had his diviners examine the entrails of a sacrifice. They foretold that one of the enemy leaders would be killed. Hoping this was referring to Aetius, Attila gave the orders for combat. The main geographical feature of the battlefield was a ridge that at the beginning of the fight separated the warring parties. Whichever side could take the ridge would gain a great advantage. Aetius led the contingent of Roman soldiers on his left flank. Opposite them stood Attila's Gepid allies, led by their chief, Arderic. On the Roman right flank were the Visigoths, led by Theodoric, who had to face a force of Ostrogoths. Aetius deployed his Alanic allies in the centre, opposite Attila and the Huns, perhaps since they, comprised mainly of horse archers, used roughly the same tactics as the Huns, and were therefore the most reliable in containing them. He hoped that they would at least be able to hold the Huns in the centre, if not beat them to the crest of the ridge. The Roman's strongest divisions were on the flanks, and he was hoping that they would be able to deliver the fatal blow to the Huns and their allies. In between, the Alans and Visigoths were positioned a group led by the son of Theodoric, Thorismund. 
The usual battle tactic of the Huns would be to try and pin the enemy infantry in the centre and cause as much confusion as possible with a hail of missiles. At a point where one or both flanks of the enemy broke, the Huns would pursue them and then turn towards the centre. The enemy would then collapse, leaving the Huns to pursue those in flight, a tactic at which they excelled. Unfortunately, Jordanes' account is not clear as to the order of events in the battle. I will go with the interpretations of Ian Hughes in his biography of Aetius. He writes that Aetius succeeded in taking the ridge on his left flank and in the centre. The Huns were beaten back as they tried to climb the slope, but Attila gave a stirring speech, encouraging his men to push forward. Jordanes writes, quote, Although the situation was itself fearful, the presence of the king, Attila, dispelled anxiety and hesitation. Hand to hand they clashed in battle and the fight grew fierce, confused, monstrous, unrelenting, a fight like no ancient time has ever recorded. There such deeds were done that a brave man who missed this marvellous spectacle could not hope to see anything so wonderful all his long life. End quote. The Visigoths on Aetis' right flank were not faring as well as their allies. They were unable to take the ridge in front of them, risking a potential disaster for the Roman side. Jordanus continues, quote, Here King Theodoric, while riding by to encourage his army, was thrown from his horse and trampled underfoot by his own men, thus ending his days at a ripe old age. This is what the soothsayers had told to Attila in prophecy. End quote. At this point, Thorismund, unaware of his father's death, spurred on his side as darkness was beginning to descend. He saw the Huns ahead were beginning to lose heart and that they were trapped between their wings and their camp. He seized the opportunity and led his forces in a downhill charge at the Huns, opposing them, trying to reach Attila. Back with Jordanes, quote, Then the Visigoths, separating from the Alans, fell upon the horde of the Huns and nearly slew Attila. But he prudently took flight and shut himself and his companions within the barriers of the camp, which he had fortified with wagons. A frail defence indeed. End quote. In the fading light of a setting sun, the situation on the battlefield was unclear. Attila's allies fled, others wandered around lost in the dark, and many were killed. Aetis became separated from his men in the confusion of night and wandered about in the midst of the enemy. Fearing disaster had happened, he went about in search of the Goths. At last he reached the camp of his allies and passed the remainder of the night in the protection of their shields. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The light of next day's dawn revealed a battlefield piled high with dead bodies. Aetius saw that he had been victorious and his enemies were at his mercy. He met with his allies to decide their next move. Knowing that Attila was low on provisions, they started to besiege his camp. In this desperate situation, Attila remained unbowed and supposedly heaped up a funeral pyre of horse saddles, so that if the enemy should attack him, he was determined to cast himself into the flames, so as not to fall into the hands of his foes. While Attila was trapped in his camp, the Visigoths searched for their missing king. After a long search, they found Theodoric's body beneath a mound of corpses, and bore him away with heroic songs in sight of the enemy. Upon learning of his father's death, Thorisman wanted to assault Attila's camp, but Aetius persuaded him against it. According to Jordanus, Aetius feared that if the Huns were completely destroyed, the Visigoths would break off their allegiance to the Roman Empire and become an even graver threat. So instead of attempting to finish off Attila, he convinced Thorismund to quickly return home and secure the throne for himself, before his brothers could usurp him. On the Visigoths' withdrawal, Attila first believed it to be a feigned retreat to draw his battered forces out into the open for annihilation. So he remained within his defences for some time, before he risked leaving his camp and returned home. In this way, Aetius avoided a decisive victory, aware that Rome's existence relied on there remaining a balance of power between the barbarians. The result was neither the conquering of Western Europe by the Huns, nor a total victory for Goths. Aetius calculated that too overwhelming a victory for the Goths would endanger leaving them in too strong a position, without the continued threat of the Huns. Attila's survival was useful in keeping the Roman allies together against a common enemy. The following year, the Huns attacked Italy, but imperial envoys sent to Attila persuaded him to withdraw, in return for a treaty with the Empire. The traditional view is that the Battle of the Catalonian Fields has great historical importance, by successfully defending Gaul, the Franks, Goths and other Germanic tribes ensured they would be the successors of the Roman Empire in the West, not the Huns. 
If the Huns had been successful on the Catalonian fields, it's not inconceivable they could have gone on to wipe out all their enemies in the west and force the rest under their rule, as they had already done in most of the rest of Europe. If this had happened, they could have stayed long enough to change the course of European history. The historian John Julius Norwich went further in his book Byzantium, the Early Centuries. Quote, it should never be forgotten that in the summer of 451, and again in 452, the whole fate of Western civilization hung in the balance. Had the Hunnish army not been halted in these two successive campaigns, had its leader toppled Valentinian from his throne and set up his own capital at Ravenna or Rome, there is little doubt that both Gaul and Italy would have been reduced to spiritual and cultural deserts. End quote. Other historians downplay the battle, saying that it did nothing to prevent the decline of the West Roman Empire and pointing to the instability inherent in the Hunnic Empire, as shown by its rapid disintegration shortly afterwards. Although we talk of a Hunnic Empire, it was never an empire in the same sense as the Romans. It was more of a coalition of different tribes, most of whom joined more out of fear than out of a sense of loyalty to the Huns. After the Battle of the Catalonian Fields proved that the Huns were not invincible, and then the death of Attila in 453, their German allies lost their fear and successfully fought for their freedom. In 454, near the Danube River, a coalition of tribes, including the Ostrogoths and Gepids, led by Arderic, defeated their oppressors at the Battle of Nadal. The Huns were expelled from Central Europe, and their empire rapidly fell apart. The Roman Empire, unlike that of the Huns, was an entity for which, through the centuries, many kinds of people had developed a sense of belonging. Ordinary people from Gaul across to Asia Minor would have identified themselves as Romans, even if they had never set foot anywhere near the city of Rome. The true genius of the Roman Empire had been the enthusiastic adoption of the Roman values that had turned provincials into proper Romans. The peace within the empire for most of its life, together with the building of roads and networks of markets, provided economic benefits to many. Aetius gave his empire a stay of execution by his exceptional diplomatic and military skills. But in 454, the Emperor Valentinian III, jealous of his chief commander and fearful he was planning to put his own son on the throne, murdered Aetius with his own hands. It was a catastrophic error of judgment. Sidonius Apollinaris famously likened the act of the Emperor as cutting off his right hand with his left. Valentinian was soon after murdered himself, and followed by a succession of short-lived emperors who had little hope of preventing Rome's decline. After Aetius, no leader in Rome was able to enjoy any significant influence beyond the Italian peninsula. In the year 476, the strongman of Rome and head of the military was a Germanic chief, Odoacer. He decided he no longer required the facade of an emperor and deposed the last Western Roman emperor, Romulus Augustus. This act marks the most widely recognised end of the Western Roman Empire, 
but it did not in itself cause any abrupt changes. Many historians today rightly emphasise the continuity before and after 476. The successor kingdoms ran administrations based on the Roman example. The building of settlements, application of Roman style law, taxes and customs. But much had changed. A Roman from Augustus's time would have felt not too much out of place if transported to the Western Europe of the year 400, but would have been completely disorientated if sent there a century later. The successors of Rome had never intended to destroy the empire, but by ruling separate smaller territories in their own right they transformed the political landscape. Local Roman landholders had little option but to cooperate with their local barbarian king to secure the continuation of their property rights, even if that meant giving up loyalty to the Roman state. Another noticeable change is the nature of the written sources. No longer from the old senatorial or imperial elite, but instead almost exclusively Christian scholars. Western Europe entered a period of dramatic decline, but the idea of Rome lived on. It left a powerful legacy that helped shape the West's revival when it came. And in the East, the Roman Empire was not dead. In Constantinople, it survived another thousand years, the richest and most powerful state in Europe during the early Middle Ages. It transformed itself over the centuries into what historians now call Byzantium. But its people always referred to themselves as Romans. As far as they were concerned, part of the very same state that Augustus had once ruled, albeit reduced in size. In the next podcast, I continue the story of that Roman Empire and the greatest challenge it faced since the Huns. A new religion... Islam was born in the 7th century in Arabia. The armies of its followers launched themselves northwards and westwards, where they were met by the still mighty armies of Constantinople. The largest and most significant battle took place in AD 636 in Syria. Please join me next time for the Battle of Yarmouk. Thank you for listening.